Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Hackable You podcast. It's Alex with Ed and Will. Good evening to you guys. How are you doing? Hello, hello, hello. Good, thank you. How are you? Happy beginning of lockdown easing. Very exciting time. It's a national holiday now. Pubs, gym. Is this a uh, national holiday now? It should be. True. Also, RIP Prince Philip. This has oh, taken a moment of yeah. silence. Yeah, have a minute of silence. <laughs> no, we haven't got the time for yeah, that. Fair but enough. Yeah. All right. Respects paid. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, it's been a really good week. Our, our giveaway is now live, and there is some really cool prizes to win. You can win yourself a, a subscription to Try Hack Me. You can win yourself a guest place on this podcast. So you could be joining us live from the virtual Hackable U Towers to broadcast across the nation. Uh, so check out LinkedIn for how to enter that competition. I must say, I'm jealous that we can't enter the giveaway ourselves. There's some pretty cool stuff in there, not to mention the Hackable U swag. But yeah, come celebrate our first birthday and uh, go and join the competition, which is over on LinkedIn. Anyway, thanks, guys. Let's jump into this week's cyber news. First up is the news that tens of millions of internet-connected IoT devices are vulnerable to remote code execution and denial of service. The study by Forescout Research has established that there are four vulnerable TCP IP stacks in billions of devices worldwide. This is impacting servers, firewalls, commercial network equipment, medical equipment and other consumer IoT devices. It's interesting to see more news about vulnerable IoT. Um, it wasn't so long ago that we were talking about the Mirai botnet and how widespread this sort of stuff has become. What do you guys make of this this week? I think uh, IoT is becoming like a, such a common news article now, isn't it? That you know, it's definitely things are definitely seem to be increasing on that on that front. That's that's what I was going to say. Like you mentioned IoT vulnerability, I was a bit like, oh, shock and all. Like what a surprise, yeah. another one again. <laughs> but then <laughs> what makes it interesting is the kind of TCP/IP DNS problem because that's a little bit more you know widespread it's that's the problem with the protocol not just the fact it's iot yeah so this could actually affect you know technically other devices and not just iot uh, i think that's a really good point there to make it's not just uh yet another iot thing it's actually more of an inherent sort of baseline vulnerability i guess Absolutely, and, and, the, yeah. and the article does call out you know that a lot of those um you know a lot of those uh technologies are present in you know really really uh new servers you know that are using things like net for, for things like Netflix and stuff like that. I mean, we've. I think for, for me, I think if I look at those kind of four stacks that they mention, FreeBSD, Nucleus Net, NetX, and IPNet. I mean, I've seen a lot of FreeBSD stuff around. That's yeah, know, really, really common, isn't it? Uh, IPNet is pretty common as well that I've experienced. Uh, Nucleus Net, not come across that quite as much, but you know, I expect it's you know. So I, I think it's, it's one of those ones. Well, it's one of those sets of vulnerabilities that I think uh, everyone's going to have to keep an eye on, aren't they? Because they're so widespread in enterprises. Um, it's definitely, you know, given the the spread of um, st- of those four stacks, there's a very good chance it's going to affect your organisation, I'd argue. Yeah, definitely. One to watch for sure as we... <laughs> we like to say it with every vulnerability, but it is true, isn't it, that every now and again something like this comes, <laughs> comes a lot along. And it's not like the exchange vulnerability. It's not like... The eternal blue vulnerability. It's one of those, a bit like Spectre and Meltdown, is kind of stuck behind 
in the background a little bit and will just slowly become a problem over time before, you know, in a few years' time, unpatched devices are then just going to be the new Mirai botnet or the new whatever. Yeah, definitely see it becoming the new normal. And next up is the news that the results of a recent study have stated that 61% of employees failed a basic cybersecurity quiz. Now, a new study conducted on behalf of Kenner Security has polled 1,200 workers to understand their cybersecurity knowledge and their ability to recognise cybersecurity threats. Some of the other highlights in the report are that employees aged 18 to 24 perform the worst in the quiz, with only 16% passing. And 60% of employees who failed the quiz reported they feel safe from threats, which is actually quite ironic. Incredibly, though, 74% of respondents who answered every single question incorrectly have reported that they feel safe online. This is an interesting one, guys. I really like the sort of user ignorance here. So someone is completely, people that are completely failing the quiz feel safe online. What do you make of that? Do you think that's a little bit of ignorance is bliss or just naivety, unawareness? Uh, it's, a, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of both. I think ignorance definitely is bliss. Cybersecurity is still something that people see guys with hoodies smashing keyboards in the in films, and and you know, people you know you guys listening to this podcast who have that lens of security might not really be aware of that. But it's only until you start working with a business, you try and roll out things like cyber awareness programs that people just really don't understand it. For us, it's quite simple. It's quite common. It's like water for ducks back for us, but. Yeah, ignorance is bliss, one of them. I do think there's an element of naivety in there because it is more of a discussed topic now. Most businesses are doing something about it. And um, I do feel like as someone who is surrounded by this, it's not hard to see it and you could educate yourself a little bit more. But yeah, I'm not surprised by the stats. It just, just It does go to show cyber awareness campaigns are crucial in an organisation as well as, you know, a good strategy and all these other sorts of things so you bring employees with you. I, I would argue that if your uh, education strategy has led to numbers like that, then, you are, then your education strategy is failing. And that's not... And some people might disagree with, with me in this, but I don't think, personally, that's not a, an error or that's not a, a failure of the end user to learn. That's If, if someone is failing to learn then perhaps and most likely thing is is that they're not being taught properly. You know, it's like in school, isn't it? You know, I think that years and years ago in, when you were in school, you were kind of taught that, you know, if you weren't learning in school and you weren't absorbing things, then you were just that sort of person who couldn't absorb it. But actually, you know, as schools have developed and gone through and are modernised nowadays, you know, they've realised that actually people learn very differently um, and they've had to adapt. And, you know, I think that's a big part of it is, you know, we don't want to slip into that area of, of blaming the end user for not for not learning these things, especially when, as security experts, it's so straightforward to us. It's difficult for us to perhaps comprehend, you know, how difficult it truly is for someone to to fully grasp and and to practice some of these things that we're te- trying to teach them. And I think that a common approach to awareness training is to wrap it in with the other standard training you get within a business, so GDPR training maybe less so, but anti-bribery, fire safety, whistleblowing, the sort of corporate training that we're probably all used to. It's very easy just to throw in security, cyber awareness training into that banner, a couple of videos, a few quizzes, and just expect people to learn it. But we've all been there, right? I'm not even ashamed to say that a lot of those just become a tick, tick, next. 
say you've done it and you've done the training right and actually what you're trying to achieve through cyber security is that's why i don't like the idea of cyber security training it, it, it's it's awareness it's it's educating people and making them aware to these new concepts and 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 really trying to get people to engage and and regurgitate and understand that information rather than just clicking next because a successful training plan are ones where users learn something and take that forward one of the things i loved alex that you've done in the past is all around that kind of cyber hygiene charter and about you know take take home with you your good working practices and cyber hygiene or if you practice that at home you'll, you'll take it to work yeah so i guess the idea behind a cyber hygiene charter is that if you if you're practicing good cyber hygiene and good cyber practices at home then that should flow naturally through into the workplace so if you're going to be thinking about these things when you're at home in your personal life being secure at home naturally that follows you in into the workplace you know the same way maybe in, in your physical security you might be wary um, walking down a dark alleyway or something that's going to follow you into every part of life because it's so ingrained in the way that you just do things and it's not seen as a hassle to learn it it's just the way you live your life yeah, and I think like anti-bribery is a great example. You're very unlikely to have to deal with anti-bribery within your own home or within your day-to-day life. Very much so, you'll likely come across it within a corporate environment. And uh, that's completely opposite to cyber. Uh, all the threats that an organisation is facing are very similar to something that you're facing as an individual, whether you believe it or not. You know, Alex Stokes, Will Reed, who work for X company, are also just still Alex Stokes and Will Reed at home. And, and threat actors don't care. So if you can practice that at home and you have that awareness and mentality at home it's going to be second nature and just normal for you and that's how your organization's culture will kind of change over time and last up the news that the mobile phone numbers and other personal information for approximately 530 million facebook users worldwide has been leaked on a popular hacker forum for free the stolen data first surfaced on a hacking community in june 2020 when a member began selling the facebook data to other members now, what's made this leak stand out was that it contained member information that be, that can be scraped from public profiles and private mobile numbers associated with the accounts. Now, Facebook stated this was made possible due to a flaw in their contact import feature, which was patched in 2019. They go on to further reiterate that data scraping is against the terms and conditions of the use of the service. We can't really talk about in talk this podcast without mentioning the Facebook breach, right? But how many people are there saying, oh, it's not a breach, it's not a breach, it's not a breach? It's interesting because it's not a hack. You know, there's not been a database that's been hacked. But essentially, it's a whole load of data that you could argue should have been relatively private has been made public. The question comes down to, you know, does the, did the owners of that data, i.e. You know, the end users, did they reasonably expect that that, that data was private and was being yeah, you know, held, held privately? Uh, and that is probably where the... The line would be drawn. I, I agree. It's it's not a hack, you know, uh, and it's not a. And I think even calling it a breach is a bit troublesome um, in reality. But um, it, it's definitely going to be one of those cases where it's going to kind of fall in a weird area because, um, you know, like you say, people 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 accept that. Well, people should accept to some extent that when they put things online, especially on Facebook, that they are putting things to to the public. Um, and the, the implications of that is you don't have necessarily full control over that. And if it scrapes, then, you know, that's that's that. Um, but if if there was an expectation as the end user that you were protecting or Facebook was protecting a particular type of data, um, then 
in some cases, perhaps that that expectation is misplaced, and you know legally it's probably misplaced. Um, but from a certainly from an ICO point of view, they may they may look at that and say, well, actually, a user would have reasonably expected that that type of data would have been protected. Yeah, you have to boil it does boil down to that almost you know common sense. I th- I think it is what I do find, or what I do want to say this week on, on about this news item is that. You talk, look at the different types of threats and insider threat is broken down into two, right? Malicious insider and all the uh, kind of facets that make up that. And then you have uh, inadvertent actors. And, and this is purely down to misconfiguration, you know, a, a part of a web application where a hole is opened up unknowingly. And I feel like this is this is exactly what this screams at Facebook. They have re- released a feature, you know, they're running the Facebook web application and a hole was unleashed that they weren't necessarily aware of. I don't think it's malicious. There's no science to say that's a malicious insider opening up that hole, um, but it does scream misconfiguration, which a lot of people don't necessarily assume is part of a you know a cyber threat landscape, but it definitely is. What's really important to call out as well is since this breach, I call it a breach, has happened, um, Troy Hunt has made available via the Have I Been Pwned service the ability to search via phone numbers, which is really, really useful. So... Um, have I been pwned? Go and have a look. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but you can use your phone number to see if you are part of that data leakage. There's also Have I Been Zucked, which is <laughs> which, my favourite, yeah. which, 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 which makes me laugh every time I say it. But yeah, if you want to go find out if you're impacted, go to those websites. I'm glad to say I wasn't. I, was, I wasn't either. I wasn't go either. Go. I was just going to say, make sure you, you do spell Zucked right. <laughs> so if, you, if you type in... If you type, if you, if you misspace that with an S, you're going to get all sorts of chaos that you don't want to get to. <laughs> yeah, don't do it, especially with everyone. <laughs> yeah, don't do that from a corporate computer. That's not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. That concludes this week's news, and we'll move swiftly on to topic of the week. So, as a nice segue from that previous news item, then the topic of the week this week is going to have a look at data scraping. Now, since the news of Facebook and around 500 million people having their data scraped, uh, it's also impacted LinkedIn, where again, 500 million users have had their accounts scraped and Business Insider reports that this is available for sale online. Can someone explain to me what data scraping is? So data scraping, right? I have come across this in most cases as a threat when it comes to website scraping, very similar. Um, where you're, you know, you're kind of scraping a login page to create a phishing, a phishing link. You know, a phishing page. You scrape a legitimate page, like I don't know, Netflix's sign-in page, Hackable U sign-in page, whatever it is, and then you you scrape the website for the images and the structure, and you can build your phishing site that way. I see data scraping as very similar in terms of it uses web applications to access and access data and pull data, except for rather than pulling visual HTML code. It's configuring open access APIs, looking at what data is pulled back, and then using some logic behind organizing and sorting that data to get something you want out of it. That's kind of, in my layman's terms, how I see it. But Alex, please tell me if there's a more formal answer for you on that. No, I think you've summed it up really, really well there. It is a form of web scraping, but focusing specifically on a certain type of data. So, for example, if you are scraping LinkedIn or you're scraping Facebook, you're going through the site and going through the web page and you're only pulling back, for example, names. So your, your result of your data scrape on LinkedIn is going to be a whole list of names or you, you can have a whole list of names, professions, phone numbers, for example. So very, very simple, very easy to do as well. It can be done in Python quite simply. 
there's a whole host of sort of legal and ethical questions around data scraping. You know, do 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 we think data scraping is ethical? I mean, yes, if it's done for the right reasons. I think it all depends on what you want to do with the data uh, and what data you're pulling. Because there are many legitimate use cases for data scraping. For example, for big data analysis and data science, um, that there's legitimate reasons for pulling data. Yeah, I definitely. You know, data scraping heavily utilized within sales heavily utilized within kind of market forecasts and things and some of the simple use cases for data scraping i've seen are you, you know you scrape amazon and you try and pull the prices of a particular item and when it's at its cheapest you'll buy it S- simple you know cases like that i think there are very minimal ethical grounds along there it, it i think it really boils down to exactly what we've seen with the facebook and the linkedin issues where you're able to scrape data that as will mentioned earlier it that would be perceived by the end user as private or perceived by the business to be their intellectual property their asset i think that's where the the kind of blurred lines are there's nothing stopping you from scraping data it's public it's on the internet you as a engineer as an application have made the choice for that to be there but are you really understanding that hacker mindset that, you know, what's the abuse side of things? No one ever likes to think about how can somebody abuse said platform. They only ever see what it's been built for, the intent it's been built for. Someone will be thinking the opposite of you. And I think that's that's where those ethical grounds uh, really need to be more defined. If you're publishing something to the internet, if you have exposed data, whether it's by an API endpoint or just open on your kind of web page, it can be scraped. Does it need to be there? What is the devil's advocate view on what, how that data can be used? I mean, I mean, I've seen the, you know, um, even data scraping used in, you know, in blue teams for scraping IOCs. You know, it's not, yeah. not, it's not something you want to rely on. I would say, um, but in a pinch, um, you know, if there's not any, you know, better feeds available um, for, you know, for what for the method that is. That, that a particular domain or some or source is using to, you know, display IOCs. Sometimes scraping might be the only the only way of getting those IOCs. Um, so it, I think it's got completely you know legitimate use cases. So the legalities of it are actually sort of they were very grey up until about 2019 for for the best part. Um, in, in many cases where there was a US um, was it, there was actually a LinkedIn. Um, battle in court from a company that tried to scrape a load of data from was scraping data from LinkedIn and LinkedIn was saying that they weren't allowed to do that um, and the, I think the court battle ended up in um, the company lose, uh, winning against LinkedIn um, and basically saying that um, because, the, because the data was publicly available and was not copyrighted then it was fair game basically um, so I think that that key thing is copyrighted um, so if it, something is copyrighted and you're scraping it, you're making a copy of something that is copyrighted, ultimately, and then therefore you will potentially fall foul of the copyright, you know, um, legislation. So I think there's that. A hacker doesn't uh, care about that, though, right? No, 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 exactly. No, 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 exactly. So a hacker doesn't give a damn. Uh, if you're doing it yourself for legitimate purposes, what I'm saying is you just need to make sure that you check those sources. You don't just start kicking yeah. off things because web, web crawlers in particular can be very, uh, if, if you're not careful with the scoping of them, they can be very invasive and they can kind of go off on a bit of a, and before long, you, you know, you, you'll start collecting all sorts of data that you didn't didn't int- uh, enable to, or didn't want to. Um, and the fact that you inadvertently collected some data could still land you in, you know, in trouble, um, even if you 
especially if you didn't really do your homework first. But no, you're right, absolutely right from a hacker's point of view. They don't, they don't care, you know. But and so, so my question to you guys would be that, and I already have the answer for my own opinion on this. Um, take Facebook for example. Uh, do you think Facebook uh, goes and makes it easy enough for people for your general your your general population sort of Facebook users people? Does it make it easy for them to remove themselves from search engines and to limit their visibility in the uh, open web? As a, if I was a new Facebook user today, my answer would be they yes they've come a long way in terms of account privacy, uh, right to be forgotten, ad preferences, all these sorts of things. They've come a very long way. They're not quite there, but they've come a long way. As someone that's had Facebook since. I don't know, 2007, I think I signed up. Um, is it easy to go back and change those settings? I don't I don't think so. I think it's a conscious effort to go and back and re-look at the privacy and security of your account. So um, I think they're doing the right thing. They're doing enough. Are they applying it to the vast majority of their user base? I don't think so. I think they've been forced into having to try to sort of get with the times and do what they can to make it seem like they're doing enough. Um, and I, I think they're just sort of treading water on that front. I think there's a lot more they can be doing. And I, I don't think it's as easy. You know, I, for on some of the social media that I'm on, I don't think it's as easy as I'd like to be to be able to go back to some of the historic stuff and restrict visibility. So I would say they're treading water. I, th I think what we must remember here is things like Facebook... They sell ads. That's their, you know, it's a social networking platform, but that's not how they make money. They sell ads. And the ads they're selling are based on data of you being a user on the system. So whether your account is protected to the open web or not, whether your account is secured as an end user to people trying to find your Facebook account or not, as long as you have a Facebook account and you're liking things on Facebook, you're following pages and interacting, that's the data that Facebook are really using to market against you. That's their selling point. So for them, do they see much benefit from, you know, securing or, or pushing you and enforcing you to secure an account to the open web because it's not a revenue stream for them? No, and I think from from a business point of view, I can see why, I don't agree with it, but I can see why Facebook yeah. you know, would, be, would be resisting and minimising the, the, how easy it is to for you to try and, you know, um, stop those things, which is exactly why they're in such a, you know, uh, head-on fight with Apple because Apple is trying to give Apple users some level of, you know, there's a lot of argument about this, but some level of, um, you know, advertising and, you know, um, surveillance protection, which is exactly against what, what Facebook's business model is built on. But I would say that from a, an, I think I agree with Alex, is yes, they've come a long way. Again, I'm a long-term user of Facebook, so... Um, I'd agree that they've got, they've got a lot better. But the the test I always use, and and most people would say, you know, they use their their mum test, your mum test, not your mum. Um, hey. And you know they 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 might um they might say, could you tell your mum to you know to go and turn off those privacy settings? My my mum would have no chance. But actually, I I I said to my wife the other day, who's a bit younger than me, go and you know go and minimise your your privacy settings or maximize your privacy settings i guess you know and it took her all evening to do it to work it out and i do think that is a little bit showing as yes it's come a long way but if it takes us you know a 29 to 30 year old she'll kill me for saying that but um <laughs> but if it takes a you know a a sort of middle-aged i don't know 
adult. You can't say you're middle aged. No. <laughs> yeah, careful, mate. You're in dangerous territory. You're calling a, your wife middle aged. She's an adolescent. <laughs> oh, adolescent. Oh Christ! You're gonna get. No, you're gonna get me in the <laughs> shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she's not. I thought we were talking about you. She's definitely not adolescent. <laughs> she's thirty. Fucking <laughs> <Okay>, hell. <laughs> oh, my bad. Jesus. Sorry. Not, I'm not looking forward Will's, to that. Will's child bride. I'm not looking forward to the hashtag now. Um, I get your point though. Yeah, it's it, it's not easy. And I think uh, the final point I want to make on this is when we spoke about earlier around kind of cyber awareness education. There's such a big culture shift that globally is going on in every thing we do, whether it be social media, whether it be work, whether it be just going to buy a coffee, for goodness sake. Privacy and security is the forefront of everything. And until people like Facebook, the big techs of the world, are privacy first, security first, it won't then trickle down and become widely adopted by everyone. Until it's normal for what we see in day-to-day life, it's not going to be normal and easy for end users to do. Well, thank you, guys. Really enjoyed that discussion. That was really productive. I did really enjoy that. That's Let's move swiftly on then. <laughs> I had a really good chat there, guys. That was heartwarming. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move swiftly on to our final segment, our exclusive segment, The Secrets from the Sock. Our secret from the sock this week is going to explore how you approach a problem you don't know how to solve. So I know that I've definitely been there and I'm sure we've all been there as a junior analyst or at a junior point in our career and probably even now at some point in our senior career, if that's the thing, um, where we just don't know what to do in a situation. You know, we may have come across a security alert or we're working in an investigation, we're reading a certain log file, we come across something that we just don't know what to do next now there's there's obviously various things you can do you know some and everyone's different some people may choose to sit there for two hours just getting scared and confused some people may choose to ask one of their colleagues for assistance some people will go to their manager straight away some people really really want to try and figure it out so a little bit of studying a little bit of googling um but everyone approaches this differently and what i wanted to talk about this week is how we do that personally and what our best tips are for when you're in that situation when you don't know how to proceed. So I think the first thing to say is that if you're working in the cybersecurity industry, you will always come across something you haven't dealt with before. Unless you're working for a massive organization and you've touched every part of security possible, you're always going to come across something new that you don't know how to respond to. The second thing I want to say is that it's it's completely fine to not know how to deal with a problem. Most of us who are in the security industry now and have been in there long enough have had to work through what it's like not knowing how to go into a situation and dealing with it it's only now where like blue team training is quite adequate that you can learn quite quickly how to respond to common threats for a lot of us that wasn't around um so definitely my my approach and the kind of mantra that i like to use is brain book buddy boss so do i know what this situation is is the information in my brain no okay then i'm going to go to my books i'm going to go to my research have i got notes can i do some online research that i can do myself to find out answers to this question if i'm not getting anywhere with that i'm going to go to my buddy my colleague my friend someone who's my confidant who i can ask that question to they might know normally that's someone who's maybe a little bit more senior to me has a bit more experience in the field and can and can help me and lastly i want to go to my boss and there's two elements to that one is that boss i need help i can't do this 
uh, please can you you know assign some help please can you move this out of my queue it's wasting time or there is your boss has been in the industry likely longer than you and has probably dealt with it before they might have the experience but that's the kind of route that I like to go down brain book buddy boss I got taught this um, in my last job in the police uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of it it's a it's a model I guess called ideal um, it was actually I think it was I think it was designed in something like 1984 by some blokers. So ideal stands for uh, identify problem, define its context, explore solutions, act on the solutions, and look and look back and evaluate. So it, okay, you know, okay, yes, it is very kind of high level, Corporate. I guess, you know, but but it does sometimes when you you know I um I do sometimes kind of get stuck on things. I I kind of write this write them down on paper and literally kind of write them out um and you know identify don't identify problem is pretty straightforward you know um what the problem is um defining its context the best way i think and the way i got taught to kind of cover that is to um if you had to explain um the the problem in in one long sentence or you know to someone who didn't know anything about it you do that so you basically write a sentence out that defines the problem um, and then explore solutions is what basically what it says in the tin you know so sit down either by yourself and then bring other people in or with people brainstorm I don't know if you still allowed to use the word brainstorm but you know uh, mind map mind maps mind map. mind spider maps diagram spider spider diagram cloud diagram a circle with a few fucking lines in it I don't care <laughs> uh, you know post-it notes um, whatever whatever it does but just you know ping some give yourself you know some some different solutions and you know don't what i would say with that is don't necessarily uh you know um discard solutions at that point just get solutions down and then move on to the next stage where you kind of look at those solutions and choose a solution to act upon and then look back and evaluate that you know what worked what didn't work what you could do better next time um, we haven't really got you know we haven't got time in, in our podcast then to go in the depths of it, but I would definitely um, say go and you know go and Google the the ideal framework or what it's called um, model um, for problem solving. It definitely helped me over the years to kind of at least get me started because sometimes I, I don't know about you guys, but with me and my the way my brain works is I have real difficulty starting something. So it takes me ages. Sometimes it takes me ages to start something, and it, and a lot of that is ninety nine percent of the planning and pl- and the work is really just just coming up with that place to start. Um, other other ways I, I've done before as well is start at the end, which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but you know if you can start at the what you'd like at the end of the you know or, or what you what the solution is, and then work backwards. Sometimes that works as well. So I really like that idea of working backwards. I I always use that when I'm investigating something like a really complex cyber incident that's been going on for a few days and and you do kind of go down those rabbit holes and you get lost. I try and think, well, okay, where has the attacker ended up? They've ended up with data in X place. They've ended up with malicious code running on a computer. Let me work backwards from that point. Don't let me go, how did this come in? Let's start looking at the emails and against every single user possible. Let's work backwards. So yeah, I will. I really like the idea of just, okay, if I'm struggling about thinking of where to start, Let's let's look at the end 
and and work backwards that way. Yeah, and uh, and I think that ultimately as well. Bear in mind, most people in their jobs are paid what they are paid for problem solving. Yeah. Okay. Yes, some people are paid to you know for, for doing something, but but in, in I think certainly in our security sphere, um, I hate that word um, area. <laughs> um, you know, you're you're paid as a problem solver ultimately. Yeah. And if I was yeah, going to recruit are. someone tomorrow, uh, a one of the the key, the key key skills, even before arguably technical skills, I'd look for in a person would be a good problem solver. That's why capture the flags and gamified things like try hack me are so good because all right, for the majority of them they teach you offensive security, but once you understand how to approach a capture the flag exercise, because let's be honest, CTFs are not like hacking in the real world. They're not like that at all, but they do teach you the mindset and how to think and how to approach things with a an open mind. Alex, you talk about critical thinking quite a lot, actually, and I think a big part of problem solving and learning how to address a problem is critical thinking, and, and CTS really do in, force you to do that. Completely agree. It's about that out-of-the-box thinking, and you approach a problem in a way that you wouldn't have thought was even necessary or possible. But yeah, when you start getting a different angle on things, it really helps. And I think that leads quite nicely into my point about when you do ask for help, um, try and try and do it at the right time. So you know, there's one thing being quite proud and quite determined to try and resolve something or try and solve a problem, but you'll be very surprised that a fresh set of eyes can quickly solve your problem. Yeah, in, so quickly. In, in in an absolute heartbeat, because you know it doesn't. You might not have the answer in front of you, but because you've been you've become fatigued, you're looking at the same piece of information for the past three hours. You haven't got anywhere with it. As soon as someone else picks that up, like, oh, have you thought of that? Have you seen that? And you just become blind to it. And it's not your fault. It's just because you've struggled with it. And that's that's absolutely fine. But I think a little bit of self-awareness is important in there to know when the right point to ask for help is. So thank you, guys. In summary there, then, when you don't know what to do, uh, there's various sort of frameworks and mnemonics that you can use, such as Brain Book Buddy or the Ideal System. But I think the main takeaway here is don't be afraid to ask for help and ask for help in a timely manner because it could be quite dangerous in the middle of instant response to not ask for help, to get a little bit too proud uh, and make a mistake. So always ask for help and don't be ashamed. So that wraps up the secrets from the SOC this week. I think we had a really good conversation. I enjoyed that. Uh, let's move in to our takeaways for this week. And I'm going to come to Will Reed first of all. I'm going to go with uh, about checking your social media for your privacy um i get it not everyone is super privacy conscious i'm not i'm not saying you need to be super privacy conscious but maybe just go and check your accounts and find out exactly what stuff is public that you may not want public and uh you know switch it off um especially being infosec professionals you probably don't want many or too much information available on google search for example my key takeaway for this week is going to look at cyber awareness training, specifically that cyber hygiene charter. Remember that cyber training is a big shock to a company. It's very different to your standard corporate training you get. Encourage users to practice good cyber hygiene at home and they will bring that into the workplace. That's where your culture will start to change. And my final thought is around problem solving and making a mistake. Never, ever be afraid to ask for help. It is not wrong to not know the answer. We're not going to know everything all the time. So don't forget to reach out for help when you need it. And that brings us to the end of the podcast this week, guys. Thank you both very much for joining me. We've had such a good chat. I really, really enjoyed it. 
And as a reminder to our listeners, we are currently running our first birthday giveaway. Uh, we are giving away the chance to win a six-month subscription to Try Hack Me. We're giving away a chance to appear on this podcast. We're giving away some really, really cool Hackable use swag as well. Check that out on the link- LinkedIn. Give us uh, a like, comment, and subscribe, as I say, on the YouTubes. And I'll see you on the next one. Bye, guys. Bye.